Today on the Chris Kirkwood Podcast, we welcome Lee Ving, the lead singer and songwriter of the legendary band Fear. Lee talks with Chris about his Philly roots, what really went down on that near riot on Saturday Night Live, and he makes an announcement about an unearthed gem record that's coming out very soon, starring someone you're all going to want to hear about. Okay, another episode of the Chris Kirkwood Podcast with, I am the producer, Bill Cody. This is Chris Kirkwood. You want to say hello? Uh, good good uh, day, everyone, and hello. And uh, I'm Chris Kirkwood, and this is the Chris Kirkwood Podcast featuring and, Bill Cody here to- at the beautiful Winslow Court Studios with our engineer, Craig Parker Adams. And today's guest is the one and only Lee Ving. The one and only, the legend. <laughs> What do they want? What do they want? Fucking A. That's what I'm talking about. Buongiorno, buongiorno. Ah, buongiorno. Ecco, ecco. Io sono Livinga. Per favore, scusatemi. Lovely. I didn't know you spoke French. Ah. <laughs> Wash your so, mouth out with soap, son. So, where should we start? There's so many places to start uh, this discussion. Uh, well, let's point out the fact that Lee is the founding member, lead singer, guitar player in one of America's greatest and most stalwart punk rock bands, Fear. That's let's just, let's just go ahead and thank you very much. get right to that. So, how you doing, Lee? I'm doing finer than frog hair, brother, and happy to be here. <laughs> oh, man, nice of <laughs> you to come down and do this. I appreciate yes, it. Yes, sir. I was telling you earlier, this is uh, the podcast thing. Bill talked me into doing this, you know what I mean? And Me too. <laughs> you too, <laughs> you know? He's good like that. That's what Bill does. You know, and it's turned out to be a, a cool thing for me in a way because I've gotten to meet some people I don't know, and yet I've also gotten to have some folks that I've known for a long time come in and chat with me. You know what I mean? And yeah. and just kind of hang out and I don't know. It's just kind of interesting and kind of different. So, well, it's good for anybody that does this for a living. You know, the more folks that know about what it is that you do, the more people could show up to hear you play it. Possibly, you know, it's always been like that. And that's what interviews and that kind of stuff always kind of were, those little things, you know, and you right. you know, you know, do this stuff. And I mean, it's a kind of a strange way to, to, to get by. I mean, it's really interesting, I think, definitely, you know, on a personal level to do what we've done, you know. And uh, yet, like, like trying to actually carve a living out of it. I'm reminded of that uh, Todd Rundgren song, There's Something at the Heart of It That's Simply Awful. Trying to make a living off a plastic waffle, right? <laughs> Todd Rundgren was the what would, should we say lead guitar player in a band in Philadelphia called Woody's Truck Stop. That's where I first heard him. Uh, I was lead singer and harmonica player in a blues band called Sweet Staving Chain, and we our most uh, famous, infamous show was opening for Cream during their last tour in Philadelphia at the uh, the 76ers uh, basketball arena at the Spectrum. And it, uh, they had about 90,000 people. And as we're walking from the dressing room to the stage, this very strange sound begins to develop. And as we get to the exit way of this catacomb-like tunnel we're walking through, just like Spinal Tap, right. we come out into the main arena and I can t- and I said, man, what is that sound? He said, that's the sound that our peop- the guy that was leading us, so that we didn't have to walk around and say, where's the stage? Like uh, like right. Michael McKeon had to do. Right. He says, uh, Jesus. He says that's the sound of ninety thousand people talking. Right. They put us on a stage that revolves, so the audience each would have a chance to see the band from the front as it turns around while we're playing, and the bass player is hanging on to the amp. Because he was getting seasick from the thing going in a circle, <laughs> but it was it was great, a great night. Todd's a Philly dude. Oh yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah that's... That, that's where he started. That's where we both started. And and are you from Philly? I mean, did yes, you grow up there? Born and raised. Born and raised there. And then, let's see. So well, let's just talk about that. How did you? Who were your folks? You know, what were your folks like? Let's uh, talk about they're, that. They're hardworking. Uh, Second and third generation, uh, born in the United States, mm-hmm. people from uh, from Italy, mm-hmm. from uh, you know the Italians, my and uh, just uh, you know looking to 
make the best of the American dream and, and happy to be in a place where that's possible, you know, for the generations that preceded me. And as I uh, came along, it was, it was, in, it was, uh, yeah, Philadelphia was cool. There was, there was an art scene and a music scene and uh, the, the, uh, the art museum is world famous. Franklin Institute for right. Science was something I was interested in from a little kid. And uh, millions of colleges and education, you know, <laughs> smart folks. And, and Franklin, I would, I would assume, is named after Ben Franklin. Yes. And, you know, the part that he played in Philadelphia. You know, talk about smart, interesting people. Yeah, the discovering electricity while he helps to write the Declaration of Independence. You know, ah, those Amazing sort of guy, amazing guy, <laughs> you know. I mean, the kind of guy... To get to Europe back then, you would take the packet, you know? So cool, like the, you know, the boat that would make that run across the pond. And uh, on like the- You would the, take the packet, but you'd also be taking your fucking life in your hands. To, completely and entirely, you know? On these little tinder boxes, the little right. ships, you know? But the guy liked spent, I, I read a thing about him where, you know, rather than just sit around on the boat, you know, he actually did some like experiments, experiments and, and, stuff and all that sort of while thing. he's on the boat, you know, and trying to determine this kind of thing. One of the experiments that he came up with or one of the things he was trying to figure out, they were trying to figure out how to make ship, you know, going on a ship, you know, crossing the ocean and whatnot safer. And he determined and he figured out and experimented with taking like a tiny little bit of oil, right, of just oil and putting it into the water and how that would calm the waves. You know, so they're trying to figure out like, you know, and it's like this teeny weeny amount of water that actually worked like on a lake, you know, where you put like a, like a tablespoon worth of oil and it would actually calm the surface of the water, you know. Wow. So he's trying to figure out, you know, maybe they could do that to the ocean as well and make the, the ship passage a little safer. Right. Or put a couple of shots of tequila in it and drink it. <laughs> you know I mean? See if it calms your waters in here. <laughs> you know, it at least make the, 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 Trip a little more. A couple of shots of, chill. of uh, tequila and a couple of cases of beer. Um, case a day. Case a day. I had a, a, a good friend of mine played steel guitar with uh, Range War, a country band that I have, uh, Ray Austin. And uh, he developed the nickname of Case a Day Ray. <laughs> case wow. a day. That's a pretty prodigious consumption. You'd have That's to some prodigious consumption. You have to respect that. And case a day. You know, and uh, back then, I don't know, I mean, beer, it's like the, that thing about, like, uh, how water was always dirty. You know, the water, like, the water supply wasn't that clean, so people drank a lot of beer. You know? Right, right. And that was part of their That was the argument I intake. used to use. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally, the water. I don't trust the water. I'm going to have this. Uh... <laughs> right. I don't want to drink that. She's got chlorophyll in it, man. Give me another Budweiser. <laughs> so, did your, were your, are, are your parents... Were your parents happy with the direction that you took yourself in? Definitely not. They fought me tooth and nail every time. You know, I got uh, my first guitar was given to me by my aunt, and uh, they they really didn't want anything to do with it. They felt like anyone who plays music for a living is shortly and soon to become a drug addict, and uh, and and be poor and starve the rest of your life. But what they didn't realize, and what people, what parents of that generation didn't look for even, was what, what do your children want to do? They were much more concerned with what do you want your children to do? Right. And that was as far as they could see. And maybe, I mean, you know, they came here, I right. mean, everybody and, came and here. And you have to appreciate that, that fact, that it was very hard for them, you know, and for their parents and what they must have heard when they were growing up. So they didn't want to jeopardize your chance for success financially and happiness. Right. And they felt that was the way to get it. They were doing their job by trying to prevent you from making this huge mistake by thinking you could make a living playing the guitar right. and singing. But if that's what you were meant to do and that's the only thing that makes you happy and that's what you're driven to do and inspired to do and passionate about, then that's what you need to do. And that was our point of departure. So we didn't get along that well. and. Uh, I was happy to get out of the house so I could spend my time writing and practicing music, studying music, and all of those things, which were difficult for me to do when I lived at home. As I left the house, I moved to New, I moved to New York after a sweet saving chain in Philadelphia uh, came apart and uh, took some of those musicians with me, and we started a band called Daybreak, the first jazz rock fusion band. And we had Dave Hubbard, a blue note tenor saxophone recording artist in the band. Howard Johnson, who eventually became 
a, uh, who was a tuba player, had a, a 16 tuba piece band called right. Substructure. 16 piece tuba band. Yeah. And Howard would play two notes on the tuba and sing a third. So he could play triads on the tuba. Man, it was bad ass. Wow. And, and, and Bruce Dittmus, Bruce Dittmus, who had been the drummer in Gil Evans' band immediately prior to what we did. Right. So we go in the studio, uh, Marvin Grafton and Michael Lang, the promoter from Woodstock, is our manager. Right. And we're having trouble getting along with them, man. And, you know, we're young hotheads and... They are like superstar types, you know. They're very impressed with what they did and all that sort of thing. <laughs> so that didn't work out so well, and so I moved to California. Had 15 bar bands where we played everything that bar bands need to play. And then finally, a friend of mine said, you ought to go check out this punk rock thing. And uh, he said, there's a guy called Brendan Mullen, rest right. in peace who has a place called The Mask down near Las Palmas and Hollywood Boulevard. He said, you ought to go check it out. He said, but man, I was there a couple of nights ago and it looked like these two guys with long hair and a Led Zeppelin shirt were about to be killed. He said, it looks, <laughs> it's really different, man. Check it out. The audiences, man, it's just. So I went down, the, I went to The Mask the first time. It was a Tuesday night. Some bunch of bands, they couldn't play. It was terrible. Five people. Second night, same damn thing. I'm saying to my wife, Barbara, man, I just, I can't, I can't handle it. You know, even though I'm supposed to see something here, I'm not seeing anything. Then I went one more night. Thank God. That was a Saturday night. And Arthur J and the Gold Cups and Black Randy and the Metro oh, Squad man. and the Screamers and the Deadbeats and the fucking weirdos <laughs> all played the same fucking night at, at the mask. And I got an earful of this. And my main concern after seeing bands who could play, you know, who were professional enough to put a show across, what the what this scene was about to me. I wasn't sure what it was about to them. It wasn't a point of like a, a place with which to place your diatribe, with which to complain about the way things are, with a, a protest song venue, uh, which I think a lot of people felt that it was. For me, it was a living, breathing, way alive audience instead of people sitting at their at their table with a drink like this while you play like at a doobie brothers show right guys sitting there talking to his girlfriend his girlfriend's like this and this is pretty much what you get at the punk rock shows man they're throwing each other through the air they were pogoing in these days it was yep. early on not quite yet slam dancing which right. we helped usher in right right and the slam pit <laughs> happened eventually and then it's really it's like a, a rugby game a soccer match you know, it's tough. It's elbows, you know, like a mixed martial arts practically, you know. And somebody gets knocked down, a couple people help him up, a couple people are kicking him. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty wild and woolly. And I'm insulting the audience, and they're getting pissed, and they're going to come up and get me, man. I'm standing there. I'm just flesh and blood. They're not going to come up and get me. And I start a song while they're trying to make their way through the crowd. Then they can't get through the crowd because now the crowd is preventing them from getting up there. Right. And the energy keeps getting bigger and bigger and more stress-related, but very, very intense. Now, at least for me, this is good enough. This is an intense show. They're paying complete attention. I have got them by the eyeballs and the ears, man. It's working for me. It's what I set out to do, and I'm happy. And when the record companies line up and start signing the punk rock bands the way they did every other music scene that I ever saw in my life, Boston, San Francisco, even Philadelphia, Every place where there's a buzz, they all show up and they sign the first 10 bands. Well, I wanted to be among the first 10 punk rock bands that got signed here in L.A. By the time it was time to sign bands, Sid Vicious, rest in peace, had just the, the previous Friday night peed on her... On a, on a, <laughs> you got to be careful here. On a music company executive's wife. They happened to be on La Brea at Santa Monica or something like that, but, or uh, Sunset. Uh, but I won't go further than that. Okay. And for anyone who uh, is familiar with all that, they know exactly who I'm talking about already. <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. So by Monday morning, in the hallowed halls, the ivy-covered walls of the music business here in Hollywood, the word was out. Punk rock for Bolton. 
That's German for forbidden. Right. Punk rock, no bueno. No good. No. Absolutely not. We sign bands. We sign metal bands. We sign blues bands. We sign pop bands. We sign bands. But we don't sign any punk bands, man. Forget about it. And we had everybody come down to see us. Warner Brothers, A&M, everybody who was in the business of selling records. They had all seen us. They all liked us. And they all just wouldn't touch the style of music. So I had picked this thing that was giving me forum, that was giving me venue, that was giving me an audience. And then I realized that the people I was trying to get through to, through all of this, were all of a sudden now disinterested entirely. They weren't going to sign us because we were a punk band. And I'm thinking, how short-sighted and stupid is that? We're just going to continue and develop our following anyway. And one day, they'll see that it was, it was the way to go. And theirs was not. And now as they're all being driven out of business, that's all c coming true. Right, all these years later. Right. Well, I mean, I thought that was one of the cool things about it in a way, you know. That, yes, that, that it was detached you know? from all of that all of that money provision by right. a big company. So you're no longer corporate. Now you're doing it by yourself. If you have anything to brag about or you have any success, the only person that's owed is you. And and that connection that you had, you know, I mean, that like you said, it was a forum. It was an outlet, you know, for you to get what you were trying to get out of it. I mean, yes. maybe not necessarily. And I didn't have to worry about the A&R you know, people being in the audience hearing me say something that was a little untoward from the microphone. You know, I could get out there and rant my political, my scientific, my sociological rants, my psychological ones, all the ones that I carry with me all these years and had no place to put. Now I've not only got an audience from my band, but I can salt and pepper them, cloud seed the shit out of them with all of this crazy crap that I think about, and they got nothing to say about it. Too bad, man. You don't like it. You got the thoughts in there now, man. Ha <laughs> ha. And that's what, I mean, it, that's what allowed me to get into it. You know what I mean? Because I didn't really... I like I really like playing, you know. I really like the feel of the guitar in my hands, you know. And I, we we all do, man. And, and it's just not that we like it. We in some ways don't have a choice. You have to keep playing if you're driven to do a thing like this, and if you find that you are. And if you don't, you'll be miserable. You'll be you'll start to be psychologically aberrant. Yep. In different weird ways, that's a reaction to you not to you depriving yourself of what you need, which is to play music. And the, and you know. And in that we were like that, and we wanted it to be like, you know, that's just who, who we happen to be, you know. And so to find myself like that, and yet not really driven, I just couldn't hook up, you know. It was never like a thing of mine to like, you know, to... Practice for 12 hours in a row. I mean, I like to... I, I wouldn't like practice. I like, you know, I just, just like to play, play, you know. Right. And, uh, but then like the, the business side of it and stuff, I never really could see myself. I never really envisioned myself like being like a, um, a professional musician in the way that like the 70s, right. you know, kind of... Because to become a show, musician you know? entails that you need to become part of the music business if you're going to support yourself and make enough money to continue being strictly a musician, to right. get rid of your other day job and whatever the fuck else you got to do to eat. So, man, you know, it's... When, when I moved to New York, I decided that since I lived among the best jazz players in the world that it behooved me to study with them. Right. And I went from having, when I was 11 years old, I had a country and western guitar teacher. She was a sweetheart, she was a good singer, she was actually really pretty, and, and she knew a lot about the guitar and could play very well. But I always felt there was a little something else, and we'd go around and play bands, at, a band with her at Christmas time, 14 guitar players, you know, yeah. would all play the same thing. But when I got to New York, I realized, man, all these people I'd been listening to all over my life, all through my life, are living here. So within a brief period of time, I was studying with Jim Hall. Jim Hall. He's, he, Jim Hall played with John Coltrane. Jim Hall was on millions of records, one of the most brilliant guitar players that ever lived, soft, understated, brilliant. Miles Davis, he played with Miles Davis. Man, upper, upper, upper echelon. Very heady, very intelligent. Just a, and and he, he liked my passion for the guitar. And so I'm studying with Jim Hall, man. You know, it's like the most famous guitar player in the whole world, if you know who the guitar players are. And... So I studied with him for a, a couple of years. Then 
John Abercrombie comes in. I was also, I was the bartender at Slug's Jazz Cafe on 3rd Street between B and C. John Abercrombie comes in with his band, right. and I'm tending bar. Well, I had also done this with Freddie Hubbard, McCoy Tyner, Elvin Jones, Archie Shipp, and I could go on all day. I could go on for a week. The bartender standing there for eight hours listening to these brilliant musicians play every day he goes to work. I should have been paying them instead of them paying me. So anyways, that was, that was New York, and that's where I moved to from Philadelphia after the blues band and started to study with jazz players and still had not yet gotten onto it. It, I mean, the overview of the jazz scene as far as guitar is concerned. Then I moved out of New York to California. California, about 12 years of playing in bar bands, still rock and roll. And then I moved to Austin, Texas, where the dean of the jazz studies at UT, San Antonio, lived about an hour's ride south of where I lived in Austin. I started to study with him, and he taught me the 251 thing, which is crucial, which is an idiom to jazz, unique to jazz, and something that you must understand in order to play the chords that go along with the jazz song, with jazz composition. Uh, it, uh, it's uh, all, all of lots, lots of Miles Davis's songs are 251 only, and it's, uh, it's the major seventh, the minor seventh, and the seventh. Those, that's 251. And, in there, and you can play them through the cycle of fourths. They sound beautiful. And uh, on, on millions, millions of, of jazz songs, when you, when you see how this progression works, how it brings you back to the root, and how you can voice them in different ways and find them in every place on the neck of the guitar, and every jazz song is salt and peppered with this system of changes. You couldn't possibly learn how to play the chords along to a jazz tune without knowing about this particular idiom. So based on a month or two of him beginning to show this to me and me practicing the living shit out of it and living in Austin where there ain't jack shit to do anyway except drink beer and I'd do a whole lot better practicing than doing any more fucking that, <laughs> I got it down. And I'm able to use the 251 to see how that works, and I am now able to play a song that John Coltrane wrote called Dear Lord, mm. in which McCoy Tyner plays the most beautiful piano solo you've ever heard in your life. And I'm able to play the changes along to it while it's passing on the record player, and I'm crying. It's the first time that I've experienced this, and I've loved this song with my whole heart for years and years and never had the expertise to see the way the melodies were accompanied. Now I understand that. Now it's like being given the gift of sight and hearing and speech after having been mute all your life. Wow, fucking hey. Well, you know, let, we'll get back to discussing the relationship between jazz and punk rock after a brief moment. I mean, one of the things that we're talking about here is like, being able to do something that you really like to do, you know, yes. this really personal journey, you know, but but like uh, the relationship between, you know, the artist and the and the and uh, the music appreciator or whatever the art, you know, somebody that's into it and and, uh, and how you got to eat and all that kind of stuff. So real briefly here, the our little podcast, Mind and Bill's podcast, has gotten to the point now where we actually have a sponsor. Pain of headache, neuritis, neuralgia. <laughs> Why not take one of these super aspirin? Well, the cool thing is our sponsor is actually, I mean, it's a super aspirin. Our sponsor is definitely a super aspirin. It's a, I had it's no a, idea your, your, your sponsor was a pharmaceutical it involved. Is. It's a, they are. They're, they're, <laughs> it's they're, just a wild stab. Well, they, it's, it's, it's this magical drug that I discovered as a kid. It's called pot. Oh, right? so you have one of the collective sponsoring you. This is brilliant, man. It's, That's it's, really it's, gone mainstream now, It's right? so badass. It's it's Wellspring up Wellspring, in Colorado and the wonderful yes. people. And, they, you know, it just couldn't line up better in terms of like, you know, the kind of person that I am is yes. definitely, as in, you know, it's weird. I may have been I may have been in a room where that was being ingested once or twice. Occasionally. Myself. Occasionally. I've heard of it, you know. And, Me too. Uh, hey everybody, it's Chris Kirkwood. If you're searching for a recreational dispensary in Denver, then the right place to check out is Wellspring Collective. Wellspring Collective's high quality cannabis products set them apart from other recreational dispensaries in Denver to meet your buying needs. 
Browse through their menu, check out their specials, and contact them with any questions you may have about recreational marijuana. Wellspring Collective is located in Denver at 1724 South Broadway, along the stretch of road called the Green Mile. Wellspring Collective, the place to go for all of your marijuana needs. Right. Uh, people cool people doing five and yeah. six years in jail for something really stupid and silly and ruining their careers and having them lose their jobs. And 20 so, years. Man, yeah. just unbe- unbelievable. And the prison system's packed to the gills hey, with these I, useless incarcerations, man. First time I, I went to the first time I ever did any, you know, my, my first go around with getting locked up was fucking over pot, you know, as a teenager. So, but here, oh, so are we good with the, uh, yeah, and let's, uh, let's, let's, Go where you said, from okay. jazz to so, punk rock. How does that... I mean, what punk rock kind of allowed me to get to, right, because I kind of realized, I mean, I was a big jazz head as a kid, you know, in a way. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I'm from Phoenix, you know, so my exposure to it was, you know... A, a, all you all know, the jazzers would come to Phoenix. They you definitely know, did. If you had you know? two or three bars that would pay decently, because in the New York bar that I was working in, and then in the California bar, Dante's... On Lancashire, uh, and Kerry Leverett owned Rest in Peace. I found that jazz, the jazz players, who were who were all brilliant players, were getting paid thirty-two fucking dollars a night right. for playing three or four sets. That's ridiculous, man. So people would definitely come to Phoenix because I'm sure they'd pay a little more. And there weren't that many places to play anyway for right. jazz players. And much like the punk rock scene. Exactly, you know. And and what punk rock afforded me was the ability to get to that artiness, you know what I mean? It's just at least in my own head uh, that, that, like, you know, that I appreciated, right? Like, the jazz stuff definitely, you know, it was that same thing where you're, like, going after an idea and, right. you know, and, like, exploring who you are, what it is to play right. music, what music is, you know, and and yet punk rock allowed me to do it, right? Somebody that's, like, I, you know, I, I was just interested in it, really. I don't think I'm any sort of a fucking genius. For sure I'm not, you know. And I realized that after listening to some of the jazz stuff that I was into as a kid. And, and still, you know, where you go back and you listen to something like Charlie Parker, where it's like, that guy's just gifted to a whole other level, you know. And and yet still there was like a, I, I thought the, pa- not, not passion really, I didn't like passion. It's just the, well, the pursuit of the thing was similar in a way. And punk rock was an open enough forum to where I could have that same like interest in it, you know, and the same drive and that kind of shit, and really, you know, get my 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 myself off on this. Get your nut musical. off you, man! Say, come you know? on, man! I mean, this, this ain't cable TV. Can we, can, we can, can say what the fuck? Can we, we want say here, nut? Right? We can. can we, we say can. nut? We, we can. <laughs> you know, and uh, and that, you know, and and that's what you know how like what punk rock gave me, you know. But I mean, the the jazz dudes, the similarity there though, I think in a lot of ways is. Was that it was a down scene financially for the musician? Totally, you know, a lot of and those was, dudes, you know, it was just a sink or swim thing, and it was it wasn't but probable a, that you were going to do well strictly numerically. But there was that period though where jazz blew up, though, you oh, know, yeah. where those dudes went and where Definitely. some of the sickest shit going on. It's, I think kind of interesting. The fifties and the sixties was probably the best and most commercial time for jazz, because yeah. uh, uh, take Take Five was a single, right. and they played it on the rock stations. Yeah. You know, Dave Brubeck on 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 Wibbage, WIBG in Philadelphia. Are you uh-huh. kidding me? Give me a break. You know, it was Temptations, Four Tops, and uh, once or twice an artist from Philadelphia, George Benson. I, not George. George Benson's from Philadelphia, right? Is is he? I believe so. Yeah. He lives in fucking Phoenix now or Scottsdale. George Pretty Benson sure. lives in Scottsdale. Everybody lives in Scottsdale. Everybody lives in Scottsdale. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you go. We, we would play the Nile Theater in Phoenix. The Nile, yeah, yeah. And I saw I, you guys. I, we, I did a week of recording with Dave Mustaine out there too. I sang, Dave lives out there. I did all the vocals for an album that uh, he had been doing vocals on, and we released it. It did very well. He recalled the album, MD wiped 45. off all my vocals, and put his vocals on. <laughs> wow. Well, the first time I saw you guys was in Phoenix. First time I saw Fear. I'm pretty sure you were, and you were playing at the. I think it might have been a place called the Knights of Pythias Hall. Right, it was one of these kind of oh, a rental hall. Long time ago, right? a long fucking time yeah. ago, definitely a long time ago. And uh, uh, that night, one thing in particular that stood out to me, I was watching you guys, and uh, I noticed that was that just like a regular bar tap room? No, it was no? it was it was like you know like the Knights of Pythias are one of those like fraternal organizations oh, or something. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it was like a, a hall, you know, where they would do their their probably thing. some promoter rented it. And... It was like you know, it wasn't even promoters back then. It was like yeah, it was this guy that you know was, had rented the place out, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you guys had come through, and I was familiar with your stuff already, you know, and having, uh, 
heard it. You know, I'd heard the stuff that you were guys were doing. And that night, one of the things I think maybe this is the first time I'd seen you. Maybe I saw you over here before that. I just can't fucking remember. But I remember this night, at least in particular, I noticed that the bass player had a tattoo of Jimi Hendrix, right? And it was when Flea was playing with you guys. Flea, you know. So there were much earlier performances. There were earlier, in, and in I was Phoenix. aware of you guys back then when like Durf was playing bass, right? Right. right. And how about this? How about when Durf got beat up? That happened in Hollywood. That happened here. And that was one of the things that, uh, you know, that, that stood out. What, what happened, Bill, was that... that uh, uh, Let me tell you what happened. You tell... I'm gonna tell here's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was standing next to him. So I got a pretty good eyeball of what happened. I told every... We played Oren Tucker's Stardust Ballroom. Yeah. And I said to everybody, the crowd looked a little hinky to me. That's a word I heard on Cops. Hinky. <laughs> Yeah, but they looked every bit uh, untrustworthy. And I told the guys, I said, and I'm doing 360s all night, man. You know, I'm not standing still. I'm watching my own back. Fucking A. So we got on stage, played the show, and I told the guys, now when the show's over, uh, Big John's going to pull the truck up to the back of the stage, right out that door right there in the back of the stage. We want to load into there. I've been paid already. I'll pay you as we get out. I want everybody in the van and out of here as soon as this show's over. The crowd just looked like they were looking to do something weird, man. I get this weird feeling. Uh, the show's over. Derf puts his bass down, wades out into the crowd, and uh, he's, he's feeling froggy and roostery, and he says to some, uh, some guy, says, uh, hey, I bet you feel really tough, don't you? Derf says, yeah, sweetie, and pinches him on the butt. <laughs> and the guy had his hands in his pockets and brass knuckles on when he's oh. talking to him. And he starts hammering Durf. So he hit him enough times that Durf had to have surgery that night in Canoga Park Hospital for the injuries, for the, the, the bone crushing that Jeez. the knuckles caused in several places in his... Fortunately, it didn't, like, cave the whole skull in and, you know, crush the brain. But it did cause some bone break. And, uh, yeah, that, that's how that happened. That was very sad. We had three or four gigs after that called Derf Space Benefit. Right. I remember making the posters for that one at Cathay de Grand. We played those and another one on uh, Hollywood Boulevard. But um, it, was, it was around the time when things started to change a bit, too. They started getting more humorous. There was less of that. You know, there was less of people wondering what the scene was about thinking it was about aberrant stuff but not knowing which one which which stuff was aberrant or what to do to be the most aberrant person or something so that starts going away uh, bands start to develop followings to get a little bigger it starts to be a more regular event the whiskey has punk rock every friday night pretty much all the time we played every every friday night there for years the starwood one month the whiskey the next month so it became more accepted and then there was other styles of music that came along that harbored the physical confrontation thing better than the punk rock scene had done. And it was not something that we were actively promoting, that, that physical confrontation thing. No one wanted it. You know, we just wanted to play the stuff, make wisecracks and go home and have everybody feel good, get their energy out, get sweaty, have a good time, laugh, hearty, hearty, all those guys crazy, and go home. And then come back and see us next time. No more, you know... Sportsmanship among the physical confrontations, but not nothing worse than that. We didn't want any part of it. So I was happy to see that occur. I was happy to see other styles of things which were less musical become way more popular and steal all of that violent stuff away from everybody because theirs was so out of control, right? And I'm not naming this style of music, <laughs> but it was helpful in a way to to tranquilize something to the point where it could be a viable audience band communication where you could then begin to think of the thing that uh, the record companies didn't want to touch us for about selling units and making money. And then everybody would say, well, those guys never were so bad. They just have a great sense of humor. And if we we're making bunches of money, I knew they'd be saying, aren't those guys funny? Right? They would, oh, that's really fun. Now I get it, kind of. That's what they'd be saying if we started to crank ducats and they were making money off of us. But before that happened, they didn't want nothing. Artistically and personally, they wanted nothing to do with anything having to do with punk rock. 
it was an educational process that was unbelievably slow, bringing them around again. Yeah, way. They way. never really. Where, came whereas, around. like Green Day, just went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's right. But they took a they took a side door to this thing. They didn't want to come in and be the big bad tough guy doing stuff that was not permissible. They were doing a style of music to me that was relative to all the styles of music that had been popular prior to that time. Less so than punk rock, more so pop music, more so was Green Day, in my opinion, related to popular music than it was to punk rock. I heard very little punk rock in it. Hmm. I heard the drums going, not, you know, it's traditional versus more frenetic. And I heard the more traditional out of them, and I heard the word punk rock being used to describe them. I never understood exactly why that was or why that took on, but I'm happy for them. It brought them, whatever it was that they were perceived as, whatever it was they started out to become, it worked. God bless them, congratulations, I'm happy for them. I like their music. And I like the song that I believe the guitar player and singer wrote that made it onto the Seinfeld show. That was, uh, Think we had the time of our lives. Oh, that's right. They did use it on Seinfeld, didn't yeah. they? That's a beautiful wow. song. Man. That'd bring a tear to a rock. That's a good song. I, I totally, I'm a, I watched way too much Seinfeld. Me too. I'm, Me too. Obscenely too much. I know all the episodes. I just think it's funny. <laughs> that's what, that was what was bitching about the, the scene, though. Like, when we, were, when we were young, you know what I mean? You know, that it was... So fucking like intimate in a way, you know, and it just wasn't gonna get over, right? In the, and in we a way, all we all you know? knew that it wasn't gonna be popular, so fuck it, let's have a good well, time. It didn't have anything to do with that at all, you know. Right, but, right. but it was still in like fact, popular enough. If you enough. thought about that, your friends would avoid you. Your punk rock friends would avoid you. Yeah, yeah, no, and you know there was like just I don't know there was like such an organic kind of a fucking like a creature element to the right. whole thing, and there was a code you know? to follow too. I remember somebody in. Uh, in one of the other bands accusing one of the people in my band of being a pot smoker. Right. You know, as if that was like the worst possible thing you could do, the most unpunk thing you could possibly do. That well, was for hippies. We were punks. It's different. Right. And, <laughs> you know, kill the hippies, right? And, right. Uh, but that was the thing, like when Dirk got beat up, that, like, because we came at it and we did smoke fucking pot, you know what I mean? And we were like acid heads and shit, you know? And, and but to me, the punk rock scene was like a, a big enough. Like a umbrella or whatever, to because where it was like, no, we everybody. could do this kind of stuff, sure. you know. And it was shocking when when that happened to when Durf got beat up, right? Because right. It, there was this thing going on where suddenly it was becoming like uh, codified to the degree that it was like, wait a minute, the fucking you know bass player from Fear right. got smashed by some dudes. How much right, more punk rock do you need to be? Here, here's something. You know? that, that, well, it's, that's very disturbing, and people interested in this and who like it and are fans of it and want to come out in public and show up to be involved in a big crowd want to feel that they're going to be safe. They don't want that to be the style. I didn't want that to be the style. But I have to say, in retrospect, that it was exacerbated by a lack of cognition about the, the eyes. I grew up in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and I grew up in bad neighborhoods. Right. And I learned early on, you got to check out people's eyes when you talk to them. Right. And you got you got to consider, you know, what, what is this person... Is this person capable of? And you have to make that decision. You have to evaluate. You can't just make assume and accept that everyone's going to be cool, calm, and collected right. because you're in this crowd of people that you don't know. Right. And especially in a crowd like this where maybe proving that you're a tough guy might be something that would get you some advantage somewhere, right. which you know has no, no a bit of truth, none whatsoever. So I'm, I'm saying that when the guy said, I bet you think you're really tough, the eyes weren't looked at. Right. There was no evaluation of who is this person. There was just, you know, I, I'm cool because I'm in this band. And I'm protected because of that. There's a, a guard-all shield around me from the old toothpaste commercials, right? You know, there's a, I, I'm protected because I'm one of these guys. No one would ever do anything. It's not how it is, man. You got to take everybody from an individual, check them out, and see if you think they're going to do something weird. If Durf, rest in peace, would have done that, perhaps he wouldn't have said what he said, 
the situation would never have occurred, and it was not as exemplary of what was happening in the scene as it was between what was happening between these two very unique personalities. You know, this is not like your average guy, two average people meeting on the street. Here's a guy who's very aberrant and there's no way of knowing. Here's a guy that's not paying attention to that fact. And so that's what consummated the fact that Durf's starting to get beat up. It wasn't, well, there was groups and groups of people looking for people on the scene to beat up. Yeah. It just happened to happen and could have been avoided. Yeah. Hey everybody, it's Chris, and I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you all a little bit about the good folks at Wellspring Collective. If you're searching for a recreational dispensary in Denver, then Wellspring Collective is the place for you. With one of the city's largest selections of edibles and extracts, Wellspring Collective offers a wide range of marijuana products to recreational adults. Their high-quality cannabis products, knowledgeable staff, attentive customer service, and safe, professional environment set them apart from other recreational dispensaries in Denver to meet your buying needs. I invite you to browse through their menu, check out their specials, and contact them with any questions you may have about recreational marijuana. Wellspring Collective is located in Denver at 1724 South Broadway along the stretch of road called the Green Mile. That's 1724 South Broadway in Denver, Wellspring Collective, for all your recreational marijuana needs. Thank you very much. We'd like to thank much. the Wellspring folks for having us. Uh, yeah. You know, having us on their podcast. Oh wait, no. We'd yeah, like we're going to gonna welcome them in. to our podcast. Um, first time I saw you was because I'm from Seattle. We didn't get a lot of punk rock up there, but was on, of course, the the movie that is just being re-released, uh, "Decline Western Civilization." Yes. Uh, and my friends and I were just repeating over and over you know leaving quotes um <laughs> after that you know it's like you know uh you know well the one we're that, from san francisco you the, know oh, right. nobody the, knew what we were talking about it's like you the know. one that lived to bite me in the ass was uh hey, it's 1981 motherfucker what's the matter can't you afford a haircut and then i i let my hair grow long a bunch of times uh, over the succeeding years and i would hear that back hey what's the matter can't you afford a haircut <laughs> So, so we're playing in Seattle, right? We're playing at the off-ramp. I've been to the off-ramp. Which is right next to the freeway, which is why they call it the off-ramp. Yeah, right? I don't think it's there anymore, but yeah. And a couple of blocks down from where we were parked right outside the off-ramp, right outside the bar, right on the street. And a couple of blocks down, I see these kids looking up, and they're looking toward the club, and they're going, Hey, Lee! One of them recognize me, and they start running toward the club. And they're running and they're running. They get to the street before the club is. And just as they get in the middle of the street and up onto the street where we're all standing, they get, the guy goes to go, hey, league. And he goes, hey, and blows chunks all over the sidewalk. Welcome to Seattle. <laughs> they used to have a dollar breakfast when you came out of the off-ramp at 2 in the morning, which I liked. Yeah, that's good. Um, we came out of the off-ramp with our tires slashed more times than I want to remember. That's a different Seattle. Now you can't afford to live there. Um, so that was a tire slashing incident. One time we were on tour with Black Flag, right? And uh, where the fuck was that? It was someplace. And we come out, and somebody had slashed the, the tires on their thing, you know? And, uh, and it's and it 2 was, o'clock in the morning, oh, and you can't nuts. get anybody to fucking come and out. And maybe, and like, we, the dude was still there or something, so, like, he got chased down an alley, and then he turned around, and he had a fucking knife, right? And he turned now around what are you somebody's do, eyes, you know? <laughs> it's like, okie dokie, well, I guess we'll just get well, some yeah. tires. <laughs> maybe in the future it would be good if you considered your actions or something. You know, bad karma, fellow. Okay, you, thank you, you for, thank you for your cooperation. Right now, young man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about some fun stuff now. Yeah. Let's see. Um, so you, how about the fucking uh, the uh, so Saturday Night Live? The, the Saturday Night Live thing. Tell us about what Saturday was Belushi Night. like? John, out with Belushi. Rest in peace, John is a sweetheart. He was our very close friend, even though we only knew him for a couple of years. A funny motherfucker, And man. an incredibly gifted comedian. And I, I find that I enjoy comedians who have the gift of comedy, that it just comes out all over them, and it's not somebody who's trying. You know, there's, there's people uh, like John, like uh, uh, London Lee, an old comedian that used to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. These guys, were, it wouldn't matter what they said. It's funny. You know, it's, they're just funny. They have the gift. John was one of those, but a real smart guy, uh, a great actor, and uh, a, a huge international star, far right. bigger of a star than I had been used to hanging out with, that was for sure. So uh, it was uh, New Wave Theater put me and John together on the telephone. He was going to host a New Wave Theater. 
there had been some bands that had been given the opportunity to be on the show when he was host, and they got on the phone with him and gave him static for being an industry guy. So I got on the phone with him. I said, man, I'm one of your biggest fans. I would love to meet you, man. Come on out to Hollywood. We'll have a beer on it. Let's, let's do it. Come on. Let's do New Wave. What the hell ever? I don't care what it is. Let's do it. He came out, and me and Spit went to meet him at the uh, On the Rocks, the bar over top of the Roxy. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of beers. Like, we were fast friends. Like, I had known him for years. And he's doing this movie called Neighbors. And now he wants us to play a song that will be run over the credits of Neighbors as, as the movie finishes up. So I wrote the song. And we went in Cherokee Studios with Steve Cropper, John Belushi, and uh, Bruce Robb was the brother, one of the brothers who are owners of Cherokee Studios who oversaw our session. So we had brilliant studio skill in Steve Cropper oh, and in Bruce. Eight. And uh, we recorded a song that I wrote called Neighbors that I sang and that John also sang. We're going to release it think uh, we're not supposed to say anything about it uh, but I was going to release it years ago without the permission of the estate now I'm in touch with the estate and I have the estate's permission and uh, Judy's permission John's former wife and uh, so it's it's being re remixed and remastered we did it, and we may not be finished, we, we did it at Studio 606, the Foo Fighters studio, Dave Grohl's studio. A couple of weeks ago, we went in, we did a remix, we may do some more, thinking about October as a time to release it. Oh, cool. Who's doing we, the remix? Uh, John Lusteau, okay. and me, and Robert R.C., my, my partner. And that's my cell phone, folks. And since I can't find it, you're just going to have to fucking listen to it. Keep going on till I find a goddamn thing. That's a catchy little tune. Here it is. A catchy little I can't tune. find my Can cell we... phone. I've always thought there should be somebody who plays over the top of cell phones. Like, right. You know, well, you, you can play on your cell phone, but I find that that thing in GarageBand, it's not a real guitar neck. You touch it, it's going to make a chord for you. So it's not like really playing, man. It's like helping you out that you don't know how to fucking play. <laughs> So then Belushi decides, so he wants, yeah, you, to on, we? He wants you to be on Saturday Night, right. Sat, Saturday Night so, Live. So uh, Tino and Sana, his childhood friend, they'd sleep out in the yard together in Chicago and, and all that, uh, was uh, taking bass lessons from Durf. And, Durf. and Tino said to John, you should have fear on. They were, so Saturday Night Live was saying, well, man, we're, we're going to get a punk band. We're thinking about having the Dead Kennedys. Oh, sweet. Tino says, no, man, don't get them. Get Fear. Fear is who you want. And John had already had a copy of our cassette from The Decline, uh, li driving around Manhattan, listening to Beef Bologna all day in his Jeep. So John calls me up, make sure it's going to be cool. I'm not going to be antagonistic when we meet or anything. We hit it off great, man. He comes out to California. We don't do New Wave Theater with him. But we get in the studio and we start recording this song. Right. The, the point of all this story is we get to play Saturday Night Live because, oh, that's all, I'll tell you about that. We fly to New York from California and we go directly to the Four Seasons Hotel, a floofy, way upper class hotel if there ever was one. The lobby has a gold lame evening gown lady playing classical harp, right? <laughs> nice. Everybody in the lobby is in a tuxedo because it's theater night right. and in comes punk rock trash fear with their jeans ripped up and leather jackets and the girls with their stockings ripped. And I go to the bell desk and I click on the bell and the concierge turns around and looks at me like, am I going to have to call security? And I said, hi, we're fear. We're playing Saturday Night Live. They got rooms for us here. He said, will you be staying here just tonight? I said, no, man, we're going to be here all week. He goes, oh, 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 I, 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 I. he starts mumbling to himself and fumbling through his cards. You can't figure out what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> that was how it started, and the whole week went like that. We come into SNL Studios on Tuesday to rehearse, 
and Chevy Chase was no longer in the cast, but he was stopping by to say howdy to friends and that. And John was with us too, and my ex-wife Barbara was uh, was our photographer for years, and she's naturally taking pictures. So she points the camera at Chevy and says, "Okay, act famous." And Chevy hams it up a little bit, and she takes his picture. Man, she just had that way. She would set people at their ease, and instead of saying, "Well, who the fuck is this man?" They would just acquiesce. Of course, she's beautiful and intelligent, so I mean that, that could not have hurt. <laughs> so yeah, so okay, we go through the week of rehearsing. We're gonna play two series of musical performances on the Saturday night, uh, each having two songs. One without the audience that John requested. He calls Washington D.C., asks some friends of his, maybe musicians and some of the other bands. Let's send, send up some people so they can be real punk rock audience for fear when they play up here next Saturday. They said, sure, no problem. So they get in their van in, in D.C., and but they drive north to Baltimore, and they put some more people in the van. They get another van, and they drive north to Philadelphia. Well, they got another van. Now they got three vans full of people. By the time they get to New York, they stopped in Trenton, too, man. They had about 45 people with them, man. <laughs> They put them in a green room that was destined for like five people. They eat all the food. They're giving each other haircuts. They're drinking beer they brought with themselves. And they're getting wound up. And we play the first two songs without audience. The audience, the real audience, uh, without, uh, without our audience, the, right. the studio audience is there. Right. But they're Mr. and Mrs. Central uh, United States. They don't really know what this is. Punk rock doesn't mean anything to them. And they're starting to feel a little bit threatened from our attitude. Well, wait till they saw the crowd come in there. And I, I'm just about to go, and I see people flinging themselves right. in the air and diving <laughs> off the stage. And the studio, the stage manager, Dick Eppersall, is getting hit in the chest with one of the pumpkins. It was Saturday night. It was Halloween night. Donald Pleasance is host. Dick Eversall's got pumpkin smashed all over his shirt during our, our first group performance <laughs> with the And Donald Pleasance announces us as we come on to play the first series without the audience. He says, ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome, they actually seem like, well, I don't know, but they're very nice fellows, actually. Let's have a warm round of applause for Fear! Fear. It's like the... Uh, so it's like English, that. and they can't say fear. It's like they can't say beer. They can't say right. fear. Fear. Say, no, no, man, it's not beer. It's beer. Beer. Yeah, that's what I said. Beer. No, man, it's beer, not beer. That's what I said, man, beer. Hey, man, don't you listen to yourself, you <laughs> fucking... Da- <laughs> it's like when uh, Ed Sullivan introduced Elvis. You know what I mean? Similar kind of a thing. A similar kind of an, uh, an explosion on the TV in a way. It or was the first you know? in history. That was for sure. First like time said, that this style of music had been played on a major network station right. nationally, internationally, ever in history. But ne- Saturday Night Live never reruns. And, okay, so we played the, f- play the first song. Audience is in. Eversol's hit with a pumpkin. It's all over him. They're not <laughs> sure what's happening. We play the second. We go- I'm about to play the second song. One of the kids in the audience grabs the microphone, which I had knocked over in the, in the song before, puts the microphone into his mouth and says, Fuck New York! <laughs> and Brandon Tarkatov is in bed in his house uh, with his wife, as was his habit, watching the show before they went to sleep. That's how, you know, they, they lull themselves off to sleep every Saturday night. He grabs the hotline and says, Cut, cut, cut them, cut them. Go to stock footage right away, right away, right away. And in the ensuing weeks, I found out that uh, they were extremely chagrined. They went to stock footage. We didn't play anymore. We didn't play the rest of Let's Have a War. And between that time and now, I've been added to the permanently banned list of Saturday Night Live, as has Fear. And that's a very small, very prestigious group and something it's of like, which I'm very proud. It's like you, the replacements, and I think there's like... I've heard, so. I've heard all sorts of other things, too. I don't know this for a fact, but I've heard like very large musical organizations, way big-time guys... Have been banned? Have been banned as well. I don't want to say any of them in case that's not true, but you know, I did hear that. And the, the uh, group of people is prestigious indeed. I mean, it, 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 it contains Signhead O'Connor, 
I'll mention that name because I don't think there's any opportunities we're going to miss because of that. But uh, oh yeah, people had a, a, a fit about her tearing up oh, the picture yeah, of the tearing pope. Up the pope right? yeah. yeah, I mean, and, you know, there's something about it though that's just so ironic in a way. You know, I mean, that like they, they consider they continue so uptight. To, you can't it, say fuck. It is, it's, that's one of the things that's cool about our podcast. I just like to say well, right network now, TV. We they're not alone in that. That's not their doing. There's you know that's the the F. CC. The FCC. In, in a weird way, though, your performance to me is kind was, of the end of a certain brand of Saturday Night Live. Well, it was because, dangerous and edgy when they were talking yeah, about well, real had, things. Yeah. And now they've gone back to becoming right. what they say they are not, which is your father's sense of humor. And, you know, the first show, yeah. the first Saturday Night Live was hosted by George Carlin, right? And one of his most famous bits was the seven, uh, seven band, yeah, words. band words. Yeah. Shit, piss, fuck cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits, right? And those were like, you know, remember that? Remember that yeah, bit that he did? did? And those were like the words that you weren't allowed to say on, on TV. And I think, you know, I'm, you know what he's pointing out is just the hypocrisy that exists in a, in a society, especially coming back Ooh, from right. when he was coming out of then. You know, right. we're sending young kids off to, what about war? You know That's what I mean? Right. You, you fucking and, and, and are, are they getting each other. chopped up for the benefit of a major corporation here in this country? Or is it for some some good, reliable reasonable reason and, right, it, you know. and it began to seem as though it was not that it was because of the bottom line of some giant companies and as much you, as anything else and yet you can't cuss on tv you right. know and people have a fucking right. fit over that you know and right. why because they're you know they're trying to fucking play to the to I, make money i like you know? saturday night live they would they would be edgy where they could be and they tried not to blow out the fcc and get themselves tossed off the air i mean what what are you going to do you yeah. can't say those things that's a great show yeah. it's a great show and look at how, you know look at how long it's been on and the, the, no, the I mean, stuff that i've been supposed to thing, through but there was a period of time i mean i saw gil scott heron was the first time i ever saw it when yeah, i was a kid man, I, gil I saw scott's a great singer and a and great he, song and he was on saturday night live they you know the bands they have now are not gil scott heron and fear or even right. you know I remember when uh, you don't oh, even really when, uh, see an authentic jazz band you know no. what about uh, what about having John Abercrombie on? They wouldn't do it because I don't think the bottom line appears big enough to them. Right. You know that that was a big influence on my brother. You know that like it was either Abercrombie or uh, Ralph Towner, whichever one of them had the fucking uh, delay pedal. There's some delay shit going on with one of those dudes, you know, and that was actually like you know Kurt always plays with the little wambly delay thing. Right, right. That is part of that came off of, uh, right. of those dudes. You know, it's funny. I one time went to see speaking to Todd Rundgren in fucking Philadelphia and whatnot. There was a show in, in Arizona, this place uh, called Arcosani. This is back in the 70s. And it was uh, like an experimental community or like a new way of living. You know how like architects are concerned with like, you know, wh what is a city and how do we build things and, you know, the relationship right. between people and their, the places that they live. And it was by Paolo Soleri, right, who was like one of Frank Lloyd Wright's, yeah, you know. Yeah, he actually kind of went from Taliesin to creating this like, hippie version of Taliesin right, yeah, you know, called Arcosani. Arcosani, and it's actually built into this fucking, uh, a box canyon north of Phoenix, you know, it's still in the desert, right? And, and you know, it's like experimental living, and it's still there and stuff, you know, it's kind of a well-known place. Back in the 70s, they decided to have shows there occasionally, and they had a concert. And we went up, one of the reasons, and we went, me and my brother and my pal Chris uh, went up to see this thing, to, to the show, and one of the reasons is because it was like, uh, I think Oregon was playing, right. you know? And then, like, Ralph Towner was there or something. But Todd played as well. And uh, the bitching thing that happened that was, like, a notorious in, as far as, like, just Arizona music is that the fucking uh, the parking lot caught on fire, right? It was, it was the beginning of catalytic <laughs> converters. Oh, yeah. And right. they were unstable. And it got to be, whatever, like 100 degrees. And there was grass underneath them. And I actually went on the tour at Arco Santi after he had just told me this story. They talk about it on the they tour? They do. They do on the tour. And we used to have concerts. It was a big moneymaker for us. You know, if that and idea <laughs> had caught on, you could do a tour of those places. You could do Palo Duro Canyon, and you could do uh, the Grand Canyon, then you could do whatever other, the, uh, uh, the, the, what are those mountains in New Mexico, the uh, Mystic, uh, whatever the fuck. Um, uh, all, all my New Mexico friends will hate me for not knowing. <laughs> <laughs> and what's, what, what's that dude's name? Winter, uh, Paul Winter, Paul Winter concert. Remember? Johnny Winter. No, the no. Paul Winter cons consort. Consort, yeah, because he played at the Grand Canyon. Oh yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know? And talk about architects. Talk about Frank. What about Wright. Paul Horn at the Taj Mahal? Oh, there you go. Paul Horn is a brilliant flutist. This this jazz a flutist. Enough. Fucking, uh, actually played in the Taj Mahal and they recorded it there. Lovely. And you won't believe the echo 
the natural marble right. fucking echo. Is it oh, good or bad? It's incredibly beautiful. Uh, wow. Paul Horn at the Taj Mahal, check it out. Yeah, Google it. it. It will tell you where it is. I'm sure it exists. It, it's a very popular jazz record. It's one of the most peaceful things and beautiful things you'll ever hear. I, I went and saw Paul Winter played at the Crank Canyon, right? And, and, and he did the same kind of thing, right? Where you go into like locations and letting that, you know, have it be a part of the, the recording process and that kind of stuff. And the dude came through, this is the 70s again, and I used to go to a lot of, you know, different kinds of stuff and see shows and I went and saw him and he was playing at um, Grady, Gavage, Grady Gamage Auditorium at ASU and that's a Frank Lloyd Wright design. Right. Oh, wow. That, that building down hey, there. Hey, wait a minute. We're talking about fucking Saturday Night Live here. How the fuck did we get on <laughs> to this? Know, this we get cool a Frank about this? Well, ASU. Don't you remember when is... Frank Lloyd Wright hosted Saturday Night Live? <laughs> I, I think the musical guests That were... must have been a couple of weeks after we played it. <laughs> yes, it was. That's probably why I don't... I don't but, but after he trashed the place, he was not allowed to, to perform right. there either. <laughs> we, we were out playing someplace, uh, an Anasazi amphitheater somewhere, right. uh, after uh, after that. So I wasn't privy to that show. We didn't have uh, access to televisions at, at that location, <laughs> but it was it was harmonious. <laughs> so he's, he's playing at this. He's, I go to the show. He plays this gig. And he's playing his he's saxophone player, and he's playing along, and he brings out a fucking Timberwolf, right? Just to, you know, you, you know, like the inter, interplay between like the punk rockers and the fucking you know. And uh, and Timberwolves, you know what I mean, audience members and stuff. And he's he's playing, and it's a big fucking animal. It's like a, a, all white, big thing. And he plays right, and he starts doing these, Whoa, and he gets the wolf to howl along. Oh, with him. how cool, man! Uh, it's kind of you know, kind of interesting. Uh, Closest uh, I've ever been to a Timberwolf. Hey, man, how close to rush hour are we getting? We are we are just about <laughs> wrapping up here, oh, but good. like, let's talk about a few things before we. Yeah, wrap sure, up. absolutely. Number one, okay, so you have this new, you're gonna re-release the. Uh, well, you're going to release We're go- it's Neighbors, nev- never been first released. time ever. Yes. Okay, it, with John Belushi on vocals, John, you on vocals? It's side A is John and me vocals. I had an, uh, John and I were discussing who should sing it. I wanted him to sing it because I used the words from his movie to sing it. And I was militant punk rock in those days and didn't think that I should be singing something about this movie with which I had really no connection other than I was writing this song. And uh, I wanted him to sing it because he was saying the words in the film. It seemed more genuine to me. He wanted me to sing it. So we argued back and forth. And so John eventually caves and says, okay, I'll sing it. So he sings the, what would be the melody, and I'm singing harmonies with him. It sounds very good. And, uh, but he's such a great mimic that he sings it as if he were me. And so you can't tell, you can't tell the difference. The difference. Except that I sing the B-side, which is just me, and that has a slightly different instrumentation. Uh, this is mixed by John Lousteau, uh, me, and Robert R.C. at Studio 606, the Foo Fighters studio. Okay. We did this about a month ago. We may do a little more mix. We're planning on announcing this in October or so. But, you know, since I'm here and since there's folks who would be interested in it going to be listening to what we're doing here, I wanted them to know too. So just keep it under your hat, folks, and don't tell anybody, right? Mum is the uh, word. Nobody's right? listening to this anyways. Nobody's <laughs> no, listening to this fucking thing anyways. No one's going to say anything <laughs> about this, strictly this a will they? Project. You can all keep a secret, can't you? <laughs> sure you can. <laughs> um, also, uh, there's a new box set of The Decline of Western Civilization. Uh-huh. Yes. Which, uh, just, if, you have not, released, right? if you have not seen it, you... you Absolutely should, because like the last twenty minutes of it is is fear, and they completely steal the show. There's a lot of other great stuff in it. Uh, the Darby dead painter story is probably right, and and people struggling, struggling to make a point. <laughs> I like the point that uh, Gandhi brought up when uh, when they asked him about Western civilization. He said he thought it would be a good idea. Yeah, Gandhi had no <laughs> trouble making a point. The people who are involved in this project that we're talking about were not... They could make points, but it was with the top of their little heads. (laughs) (laughs) Struggling to have a thought. And and, and you also have been... You've still been playing live. Uh, Yeah. Are you going to be doing some shows coming up? We played at the Rainbow uh, in June. And we played the Whiskey in September and in January. And we're about to play the whiskey again. We'll play the observatory in Orange County again, down in Corona. And uh, let's see what else. Oh, have I neglected to mention 
that we're going to play a show with Offspring at the Hollywood Palladium the 31st of July this month coming up. So be there or be square, folks. That sounds like a heck of a show. What do they want? What do they want? And there it is there, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, anything else that we need to talk about? No, nah, hell, man. I think we're good. Let's just have a war so you can go die. <laughs> well, what, what, if, what if Porky Pig said it? Let's have a war. Where are we being war here? <laughs> what, 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 what were you trying to say in beef bologna? <laughs> That's right. What were the ethereal things you were attempting to touch with people on it was a love song for my ex-wife oh that's so beautiful uh, that's what i love about saturday song night Live said, well you Fucking can say touching. she just wants some beef bologna but you can't say she just wants my beef bologna was that true that's true that's so what, this is like this is the, your light my fire moment it's like that's what the what do you call it the uh you know the guys that tell you what you can and can't do the, uh that's standards and practices i think uh, I think that's called everybody else. Yeah, the the people who, yeah, it's it's wild. Well, it's been fabulous having the great Lee Van. Thank you guys for having me. And, uh, uh, and thank uh, you, Lee. That was a blast. Thank you, everybody out there, for being good fear folks for years and years. Bless your hearts. There'll be lots more, and we're looking forward to seeing everybody everywhere real soon. There you go. Today's show was recorded at Winslow Court Studios in Hollywood, California.